mom was one of the hardest working women I knew. It wasn't that she didn't work, she wasn't lazy. You know, I grew up in a community full of hardworking women, but hard work was, you know, not always enough. So um, it was my mom's uh, ability to join a union that really changed our lives. I remember her coming home, you know, from her interview and she was like, baby, if I can just get this permanent position, it's gonna change our lives. And she was right. I mean, you know, we didn't go from poor to middle class, but we went from poor to working poor to, you know, like she could finally pay bills, put food on the table and have some economic dignity. And it was only because she had the opportunity to join a union that she was able to do that. You know, she she worked for 30 years and was able to retire with a full pension because she was a union member. I've always believed and known firsthand the difference that the union can make in the lives of workers, families, and communities. And so it's that knowledge that's driven, you know, my service in the movement, and especially for women and for people of color. You know, the opportunity to join a union is often the only chance they have to end the cycle of poverty they might be trapped in. So making sure that we have a vibrant, inclusive labor movement that allows space for all workers is what drives me to do this work. Hey, folks, this is Stephen Pitts, host of Black Work Talk, an organizing upgrade podcast. Here we look at efforts around the country to build the collective power of black workers. We often remember where we were when we learned of events that become historical markers. I remember when Mr. Zarvis came out to the gym field to let us know that JFK had been killed. Family friends were overwatching Sunday football on TV when the adults gasped at the hearing of the murder of Malcolm X. My sister and I were watching TV when the news announcement interrupted the broadcast to tell us that Dr. King had been assassinated. I was in the gym after a morning workout when my girlfriend called to say the World Trade Center had fallen. January 6, 2021. I was sitting in my living room surfing the internet when the word filtered out about the insurrection. My exhilaration at the victories in Georgia ceased as I sat glued to my laptop and laid on my television reading accounts of the assault, viewing images of the scaling of the Capitol wall, listening to commentators and politicians talk about the attack on democracy. I was stunned. I was angry. And there's little I could do. At some point, I thought about March 21st, 1960 the date of the Sharpsville massacre, the date when South African police fired upon anti-apartheid protesters killing 69. One response to the massacre was the shift to armed resistance by the African National Congress. I am in no way advocating taking up arms. From any number of perspectives, that move would be foolish, stupid, infantile. But I mentioned the Sharpsville massacre to raise the larger point that sometimes social movements face pivot points where old established strategies must change. This is one of those times. One political party just endorsed, implicitly or explicitly, a series of events that resulted in an insurrection. If we truly believe in the beloved community, we cannot continue as we have in the past. We have the dual task of opposing the immediate assault on democracy and expanding and deepening the definition and meaning of democracy. Some of the people opposing the insurrection, some of the elements of the Biden coalition, have a narrow view of democracy. Democracy is much more than the very, very important formalities of voting. A truly democratic society permeates all elements of life, political, economic, cultural, and removes the ability of hierarchies to dictate or control outcomes. Saying no to the insurrection and sanctioning the insurrectionists are necessary but insufficient conditions to the creation of our beloved community. Expanding the franchise and protecting people's right to vote, separate from bogus claims of voter fraud, are also necessary but insufficient conditions for our freedom. We can and must do more, but it requires our political strategy to change. Georgia showed us that when we roll deep, we can win. But the nature of our federal political system and the nature of racialized capitalism forces us to roll deep and broad. We need a progressive version of a 50-state strategy. This strategy will vary from state to state, but what is consistent is the need to build institutions rooted in working people's everyday lives and 
support the social networks that people form in order to move through the major turmoils and mundane events of their life. And the best work will be rooted in a deep commitment to fighting racism and capitalism. I am happy to have April Sims as my first guest in 2021. More importantly, my first post-insurrection guest. April is the Secretary-Treasurer of the Washington State Labor Council, the State Federation of Unions in Washington. Her position makes her the second-highest elected officer in the Federation and the first Black woman to hold this position. April played an integral role in the process the State Labor Council undertook with Bill Fletcher and others to strengthen its commitment to fighting racism. One outgrowth of this work was the document, Race to Labor, Can Organized Labor Be an Agent of Social and Economic Justice? And this document was the basis for a series of trainings throughout the Federation about the origins and nature of racism. I look forward to talking with April about this effort. But I want to remind you that we need your support. Here at Black Work Talk, we are committed to developing a vibrant conversation bringing you the key voices building Black worker power in the workplace and in the neighborhood. Bringing you the best guests and the most timely discussions takes resources. We depend upon people power to grow. So please go to Patreon to make a financial contribution, large or small, and become a part of our community to support the work we do here at Black Work Talk. April, thanks for coming to the show. I really appreciate you doing this. Oh, it's a privilege to be here, Stephen. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, it's great. You're my first show of 2021, and I'm hey. excited that you said yes. Um, I didn't know I didn't know you'd be my first post-insurrection guest, by the way. And um, so we have this kind of insurrection to talk about as well. And it's, it's um, yeah, yeah. It, it's 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 it's, uh, it's amazing. I, I tell people mm-hmm. that I was I was actually tearing up somewhat watching take place on Wednesday, you know. But yeah, so I don't want to be the main part of the show because mm-hmm. you know we have to go forward and build power to change the world. But I got to ask you, what were you feeling when you saw it unfold? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm still processing all of my feelings, right? You know, I was working, so I had CNN on in the background and the the mute down. But, you know, I'm, I was chairing a couple of meetings, so I really couldn't, you know, I had one eye on the on the TV screen and another eye on my work. And I think it just felt really surreal, right? I mean, I think not surprised. But, you know, there's a difference between, you know, knowing that this could happen, you know, we had been planning for some post-election activities and then the reality of it actually happening. But I think at the base, the very root of my feelings was just real fear, you know, for my personal safety, fear for the future of this country, uh, fear for my community. And I think that fear is still there if I'm being, you know, if I can be vulnerable and candid right now. Please do. Um. How you taking how are you taking care of that fear right now? What are you doing to to take care of yourself, given that? I'm like, you know, I, I want I'm trying to honor it. You know, um, recognize that that is that is the emotion, and then you know, a lot of my self care these days. I've been journaling, um, trying to capture my feelings in this moment, so I don't romanticize five years from now what we went through. And you know, I'm a new member of the Peloton cult, so oh. I made sure to uh, get on my bike uh, Wednesday night. Um, despite, you know, the fear and, you know, process some of my feelings through some physical exertion. Uh, you're a Peloton person. That, that won't be a big show conversation. I am too. So we'll get a post-discussion, okay. p- post-interview, we'll get a discussion over Peloton. And your favorite- You definitely got to give me your leaderboard person. name. Well, we'll do that, okay? Yes. It, it's, it's, okay. Stephen, it's Stephen Sasa, by the way. Freedom Now. Stephen Sasa. But anyway, okay. um, enough with Peloton. More important by the, by yes. the impression and stuff. Um <laughs> You know, for me, it's just complicated feelings. Like I said, I, I was at some point tearing up when it happened, you know? I'm amazed of how I can intellectually say what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden, they go below. They, they keep falling. We keep falling. I think we bob now. We keep falling. And kind of knowing that is this amazing, it's amazingly unsettling feeling. It's mm-hmm. um, what to do, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really believe that's important to... um build power to change the world. I'm not mm-hmm. big on vengeance at all, by the way, but you can't let shit happen. You, you, know, you can't. At a certain point, it's too much. So you steal some money. I can, I'm okay with that, but you can't right. call it insurrection. You just can't, can't do that. And so right. it's been, been really, really hard to deal with that. Has there been any discussions you've had kind of semi-formal in the labor movement? 
in terms of, of this whole thing? You know, there was, um, you know, obviously, you know, we, we released a statement, the Washington State Labor Council released a statement and, you know, working with our communications folks and wanted to make sure that the statement was really rooted in compassion for how uh, triggering this moment is, not just um, not just the display of white supremacy and racism, but the, you know, how our immigrant siblings must have been feeling on Wednesday. You know, mm-hmm. many of them fled authoritarian rule and dictatorship looking for the safe harbor of our democracy and how vulnerable they might have been feeling. So, you know, thinking about, you know, like, how are we rooting our work in compassion right now mm-hmm. and also not wanting to take away from the amazing work that Black women led and the work of, you know, communities of color and those organizations to deliver Georgia earlier that morning, you know, and I think, so there's the fear that I have. And then the secondary emotion is the anger that, that that is the story, you know, that this insurgence is the story. And we're not talking about the amazing work that delivered Georgia, that delivered the election in November. And I want to, I want to, I want to stay grounded in, I want to make sure that the conversations that we have moving forward um, don't lose sight of that amazing work. And it was the, the protests for racial equality this summer that delivered the election in November. And it was the racial equity work that delivered Georgia on Wednesday, and it is our continued commitment to doing this racial equity work and building up communities of color that will continue to change this country. And, you know, what we saw on Wednesday, this white terror, this white rage is nothing new um, for all the folks who said this is an America and the folks that were shocked. For many of us, this is the America that we've always known. You know, I think about my grandparents, you know, my grand, they were sharecroppers in rural Louisiana. And my grandfather fled under the threat of a lynching and you know, migrated to Washington state for social and economic justice. But, you know, like white terror is nothing new to black communities. So what we saw on Wednesday is scary and makes me angry, but then I'm reminded that it's nothing new. And so you're right. The work continues. Yeah. I, I, I just said, up, I just, I just hit you with a lot of thoughts right there. So that's, that's yeah. fine though. It's, it's, I'm glad to hear it. I'm, I'm, to me, us talking is part of the, the taking care of self process where we can kind mm-hmm. of make sure that our feelings are whole, unheld inside and we can kind of say what they are and all the kind of complexities and craziness, you know, that's part of doing good. I always thought that if you hold stuff inside, it comes out bad. <laughs> so it's better mm-hmm. to come out intentionally, you know, I want to put one yeah. pin in one like thing, that. then go forward in some stuff. You know, I don't have a good sense of Washington. I, I have a sense that Seattle and, T- and Tacoma is like the Bay Area here in California. Uh-huh. But I have a sense that when you leave Seattle, Tacoma, keep start going east, it's, oh, shit, different kind of country. Oh, yeah. you know? So I'm assuming that there's a decent part of the Washington labor movement that are Trump supporters. And mm-hmm. so I, I would love to, I want to come back to that whole question of how do you deal with the labor movement and the fact that you have to put it in a nice term, Trump supporters right now, inside inside of a house? And, and how do we deal with that? Mm-hmm. But um, before that, I, I know who you are a little bit. Didn't know your roots in Louisiana, by the way. My roots in Alabama. But, oh, yeah. but I want to find out more about who April Sims is, you know? And, and so first, by the way, I didn't mention, you are Secretary Treasurer of the Washington State Labor Council. But what is the idea of Secretary Treasury? You take notes and count the pennies? What do you do exactly? So what does it mean to be <laughs> Secretary I have a joke. I know you do more than that. But but for real, mm-hmm. what is what do you do as Secretary Treasurer, real briefly? Yeah. It's such a good question because, you know, the title doesn't translate well outside of the labor community. I know. So, you know, as Secretary Treasurer, you know, I often say that my fiduciary responsibilities are, you know, constitutional compliance and the budget which sounds really boring at any party. Um, Not a lot of parties these days, so I guess that's okay. But 
so it sounds really boring until you, you know, consider that, you know, your budget is a moral document, right? It's how you identify your priorities and fund your priorities. So, you know, I have a lot of responsibility around determining how we're going to invest, what programs we're going to invest in and where we're going to spend our money. We just created a new position for a director of racial and gender justice um, that will allow us to move our racial equity work forward. I'm excited to talk about that more later. But then the other piece around constitutional compliance, our constitution is our guiding document. And the preamble of our constitution charges us with fighting the forces that seek to enslave the human soul. This Mm, is language that was written into our constitution nearly a hundred years ago. And it's my job to uphold that language um, and write accordingly. That language sounds beautiful. Wow. It, it is a beautiful charge and I love reminding folks that that is our work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Make sure we're clear. If someone said, Bring me the top two people in the labor movement in Washington. You're in the room, right? So it's super clear. Yes. Yeah. That's yes. So, that. I, yeah, it always feels like a little bit of a soft flex, but I am uh, the second highest ranking labor leader in Washington state and the first uh, black woman elected to serve in this position. Now, this is not a video, it's audio, but you can flex. Let me see you flex now. That, that, Ooh, ooh. You want to see? You want to see? <laughs> Y'all, you're missing a serious flex there, okay? But seriously, it's it's um it's important to know that 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 not only you're a person who's phenomenal, you have major power in labor. It's important for people to know that. How did you get into the labor movement? What what got you there? This stuff. Mm. Um. Yeah. I've uh, I've always believed in the labor movement. I mean, um, I was raised by a single mother of three, and um, you know, we grew up poor. Right. And, you know, when I talk to my kids about, you know, like being poor, I'm not talking about, you know, uh, money is tight. Wait till next payday poor. You know, we were they just cut off the power poor on and off welfare for most of my childhood. And um, my mom was one of the hardest working women I knew. It wasn't that she didn't work. She wasn't lazy. Um, You know, I grew up in a community full of hardworking women, um, but hard work was, you know, not always enough. So um, it was my mom's uh, ability to join a union that really changed our lives. I remember her coming home, you know, from her interview and she was like, baby, if I can just get this permanent position, it's going to change our lives. And she was right. I mean, you know, we didn't go from poor to middle class, but we went from poor to working poor to, you know, like she could finally pay bills, put food on the table and have some economic dignity. And it was only because she had the opportunity to join a union that she was able to do that. You know, she she worked for 30 years and was able to retire with a full pension because she was a union member and she's living her best life right now. You know, I was just uh, visiting her in Montana uh, for the new year. So yeah. I've always believed and known firsthand the difference that the union can make in the lives of workers, families, and communities. And so it's that knowledge that's driven, you know, my service in the movement, um, especially for women and for people of color you know, the opportunity to join a union is often the only chance they have to end the cycle of poverty they might be trapped in. So making sure that we have a vibrant, inclusive labor movement that allows space for all workers is what drives me to do this work. So when I got a job, I joined a union and, you know, I come from the rank and file and just kind of worked my way through. And you kept rising. Last episode, I, I quoted Maya Angelou, and and still we rise, and so that's mm. what, part of what you still rise. It sounds sounds great. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to ask you about the work that's been happening in the state labor council around race. Now, I know a little mm-hmm. bit from the outside, but I, I know that I guess starting around the time that Michael Brown was was murdered, that you did a deep dive into the question of labor and race, and at some point it culminated in a document, "Race to Labor." Can organized labor be an agent for social and economic justice? Um, that's, that's, a, that's a document people should actually you know, get and read. It's, a, it's good and long and, and, and thick and thorough and important. But give me a sense of what led up to that process um, initially. Why did you get started yeah. on that stuff? Yeah. In 2015, the delegates at the Washington State Labor Council Convention passed a resolution calling on us to take up President Trumka's call to have an honest conversation about what the labor movement should do um, and could do to address systemic and institutional racism. 
that resolution was driven by, uh, you might remember the Bernie Sanders Social Security birthday rally that happened in Seattle in 2015. Um, this was organized largely uh, with by and with you know labor allies. And when Bernie Sanders took the stage, a couple of Black Lives Matter protesters hijacked the stage um, and demanded to be heard. And uh, the passive aggressive, you know, uh, racism that is prevalent in the Pacific Northwest was out on full display. I mean, there were union siblings saying, you know, I agree with the message, but I don't agree with their tactics and they shouldn't have taken over, you know, our, our event, even though protest and, you know, that, that that's a tool of the labor movement that we have historically used to bring about change. And so, um, you know, seeing our labor brothers and sisters kind of respond in this moment in that way is what drove the resolution and um, what really brought us to this work. So uh, then president of the State Labor Council, Jeff Johnson, uh, commissioned Bill Fletcher to write the narrative you just mentioned. Folks can download it uh, for free uh, by going to our website, wslc.org, and clicking on the Race and Labor tab. That will bring up a a list of uh, resources that we have available. And then we started working on, you know, the what we could and what we should do. You know, how do we address institutional and systemic racism within an institution that is historically racist, right? As all of our institutions are, unless they're working to be actively anti-racist. So we had some really tough conversations with a lot of leaders. Um, uh, candidly, the resolution asked us to reach out to Black-led organizations and when we did, they told us, clean up your own house and come to us next because you all got your own work to do and we're not here to help you do it. Uh, heard that loud and clear. Um, so with the help of Bill Fletcher and the Washington Labor Education uh, and Research Center, we put together a full eight-hour uh, curriculum um, that trains folks on, on the manifestations of racism. How does it show up in our workplace? How does it show up in our unions? Um, what is the history of racism in this country? And in our unions, you know, all designed to get folks to a shared uh, definition that racism is a tool that has been used to divide the working class so the wealthy elite can consolidate. So, if I can ask you a question, very top. Can yeah. I ask you questions? I mean, I've, you got to interrupt me because I'm just going to keep talking. <laughs> okay, okay. I'll say, girl, be quiet. It's my turn. It's my show. Yeah, Come on. Just like, <laughs> I mean, well, you know, you could do you could you could do a little more subtle than that. You know? Okay, well, I'll see if I get subtle. Okay, but but seriously though, <laughs> I, I want to get I want to make sure that I understand and also listen listen to understand kind of the nuts and bolts. Because a lot of times, yes. what happens, um, people pass resolutions, they sound phenomenal, and that's it. And so the kind of the hard work in my mind is post-resolution, right? It's actually the nuts and bolts of, of rolling it out. So did you have yeah. like initial form of task force? Did you kind of require people to attend with simply volunteers? Give me a sense of, of I, I get a sense that you work with Bill and people in Washington State to develop a curriculum. How did you roll it out exactly? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the, the practical and technical pieces. That's good. Yeah. yeah we created a special committee. Um, that was made up of leaders, uh, affiliate leaders, members of our executive board, and members of our constituency groups. So groups like CBTU, a Philip Randolph Institute, Apollo, and you know the work started there. And we we decided on a training because after our initial conversations, it became clear that everybody wasn't operating from the same base of knowledge or the same shared understanding. So we decided we had to at least get folks to us to the same understanding of what racism is and how it presents. Um, we originally created a train the trainer program, made it mandatory to the extent that you can make things mandatory when you're leading a federation, that principal officers had to participate if they wanted to send their staff to go through the training and then train them on how to go back to their unions and offer the same training. And we did a series of train-the-trainer workshops. And then the next year, our affiliates passed another resolution calling on us to provide some more institutional support for the work and creating some real solid deliverables around, you know, creating a toolkit, having a a race and labor summit, bringing together at least 100 young workers of color to identify best practices and talk about the barriers to doing this work. And, you know, the it's not easy work. Anti-racism work is like brushing your teeth, right? You're like, you got to do it every day. 
um, twice a day if you want to impress your hygienist. So it's not like a, you know, you can't just do an eight hour workshop and, and call it done. Um, and which is why we've created a race, a racial and gender justice uh, director position to help move us from having just a workshop to an actual campaign to become an actively anti-racist organization. That's not easy work. So, so um, what sort of pushback occurred um, as you began to roll out the, this, this educational program? Well, you know, you get the usual pushback around whether or not this is a priority. You know, when we started doing this work, it was right before the Janus decision. So it was in anticipation of the Janus decision, which was the big decision, uh, Supreme Court ruling um, that was predicted to create right to work scenarios for public sector unions. And, you know, that the that our opponents, opponents to organized labor, the thought would be, you know, this devastating blow. So that we had a lot of unions that were focusing their time and effort on internal organizing and preparing for the Janus decision. And there was some pushback around whether or not this was a priority, whether or not we should be resourcing this at this time and whether or not talking about racism was divisive. And, you know, we can't talk about racism um, because our members don't want to talk about it. Uh, the standard pushback. And what we found, um, just thinking about the Janus decision, is that there was a large public sector union that did a national survey of its members in anticipation of this Janus decision. And the survey revealed that um, union favorability was the highest among Black workers and Black members. And at the same time, Black workers and Black union members are the group most likely to leave our union, given the opportunity, which wow. suggests a big disconnect, right? Yeah, yeah, like yes, Black yes. workers, we see the value of the labor movement, right? We don't always see a place in our institutions for us. And so the racial equity work that we were doing, that we were launching in Washington state became a central part of the internal organizing around Janice given what we know about how black workers feel. That's interesting. We were able to I, lift that up. I've always heard the first part in terms of the, the openness of blacks to unions. I hadn't heard the second part, that they'd be the ones, the first ones leaving given opportunities. So, so that's an interesting point yeah. you made. And speaks to the importance of doing the, the work and doing the mm -hmm. work to address the particular needs of certain members of the working class and knowing mm -hmm. that, that that generic call may not be sufficient to do what you need to do to build the power of, of labor. Um, you mentioned you, you started a, a, a young workers of color sort of forum, you said earlier. What was that and how did it go? Oh, um, we did the, we did that summit, I believe it was in the fall of 2018. Mm -hmm. Um, and we had, we didn't quite hit our mark. The resolution called on us to bring together 100 young workers of color. We had, you know, about 160 people participate in our summit uh, from various, you know, rank and file leadership and staff positions. We didn't hit 100 folks under the age of 35. And for your listeners, labor defines young as under the age of 35. So that'll tell you a little something there. We could, we could, that's a separate podcast, I'm sure. Um, but, um, but we brought folks together and, um, talked about the barriers to this work, um, identified, uh, best practices, used this as an opportunity to identify new leaders and train them. Um, and are still, you know, we're still, it's kind of a, sometimes it's a three steps forward, two steps back process. Um, you know, change is not, you know, this, it's, it's not this straight line, so, um, you know, we did some work capturing best practices and used that as an opportunity to try to find new folks who could help facilitate the workshop. And it was a day and a half. I'd have to, um, after 2020, 2018 feels like so long ago. Hey. So I'd have to look at my notes to, you know, um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. to remember some of the specifics there, but. But do you see some of the young workers who, who are involved being more active now and being active in the campaign you've done since then? You've seen that there's been an outgrowth of, of the work of the, of the summit? Yes, yes. In fact, there were so many, um, so many of the young people who came to that summit talked about how they had never been in a union room that looked like that one, hmm. right? That was so diverse, that had so many young people, and that was specifically focused on um, dealing with racism within our movement. And um, for many of the young leaders there, that was a, a you know a catalyst for them to to further engagement. 
so I have so many questions, April, so I may need to kind of pick the best two or three and, and keep going, you know. But so in turn, I've always thought that it's really important to have the education work being done and knowing the history, knowing how things have unfolded, knowing how it's still unfolding. But at some point, it has to lead to changing today and changing tomorrow. And, and so how did you see, what do you see as some of the victories or successes from what you've done so far in terms of, of people behaving, people and institutions behaving differently because of the, of the, the trainings? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, the most recent example I'd love to lift up is um, the work that we've been doing in King County. King County is the largest county in, uh, in Washington, so that's where Seattle is located. And the, the labor unions that represent the workers there negotiate their contract in a coalition. So it's about, you know, a dozen unions all negotiating with the county for a collective bargaining agreement. And over the last year, the county has really been trying to implement some equity pieces and trying to implement them without working with the union. And then when they implement them and they get their hands slapped because they're not going through the process, then there was the scapegoating. They were blaming the unions, you know, like to their workers, we would love to do this, but your union won't let us. And so this led to some some natural conflicts. And we were, they reached out to us, both labor and management. um, And we have been working with them providing training and facilitating meetings to help them get to a shared understanding around what the problem is and how they can work together and how they can work together to use the collective bargaining agreement to implement some of the racial equity pieces that both groups want to implement, but they just didn't, they weren't able to come together to make it happen. And just recently, the county um, offered to make Juneteenth a paid holiday Okay. for these workers. Okay. Yeah. You know, um, as an outsider to to the Northwest, um, I have this image of of having the 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 that's the base camp of white nationalism. That could be mm-hmm. right, that could be wrong, a little bit in between. And and given that's my starting point, that the Northwest is the base camp of white nationalism, I'm assuming that means that they're inside of our movement in Washington as well. How do you deal with that? So mm-hmm. one, t- tell me free, tell me free that I'm wrong. Let's think we have a thousand, you know, Bernie and Biden people all in labor when no one's there supporting Trump. But, 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 but seriously, I mean, tell me how you deal with that, those folk who, who are, might have, might have been in the Capitol building today, actually, okay? They mm-hmm. might look upon that being a good thing that was done. How have you done with, how have you dealt with those, those people inside the labor movement? And what do you see doing, dealing, how do you see doing with them going forward? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing that I would say is you're not um, necessarily off about Washington, the Pacific Northwest in general, right? So Oregon, Washington, Idaho, you know, what we have in Washington is what we call Pacific North White um, instead of Northwest, but it's a more passive aggressive form of racism in that we've got a lot of really well-intentioned white folks in the state and a lot of covert racism racist and racism. So, you know, like how we deal with it in the labor movement. I mean, I don't know if that's a, is that a, let me make sure I understand the question. Are you asking me personally how I deal with it or how do we deal with it as a movement? More more institutionally. More institutionally. Institutionally. Yeah. Yeah. But in that regard, like there are Trump supporters everywhere, right? Um, Every union, every um, grocery store, you know, so Washington is not unique. Our our affiliated unions in Washington state are not unique. You know, something like 40% of union members nationally identify as either fiscally or socially conservative. So it is a problem, not just in Washington, but I think throughout our labor movement. And mm-hmm. I think we have to be um, unapologetic about the work we need to do. Right. So one of the ways I guess one of the ways that we deal with it institutionally is is using data. Right. What does the data tell us about the future of the labor movement? That the working class, which is folks that are, you know, identified as not having a college degree, makes up 66 percent of the workforce. Right. And the working class will be majority minority by 2035. That's in 14 short years. Mm -hmm. And for workers between the ages of 25 and 35, they hit that benchmark this year. 
So if we want to remain relevant as a movement, um, we have to do racial equity work. And I think we have to be clear, explicit, and unapologetic about the fact that we need to do the work and what that means. Yeah. The reason why I was asked, asked the questions, I, I will move on to the topic in a second, but to kind of to close it off a little bit, I always thought that the best way to change people's hearts and minds is through struggle. That, that we're mm-hmm. incredibly complicated, nuanced, mixed up people, right? We have multiple identities that we juggle around and we land on one at this point in time to be our lead identity. But it's not mm-hmm. fixed. It's, 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 it's very dynamic. And I thought that the value of the labor movement is this best context to change people's minds around race. Because we have, if you compare look at other institutions in America that, that are kind of durable, the labor movement is the most integrated one of those. That we mm. go to churches, segregated churches, right, by and large. Mm. We have segregated music spaces, by and large. We have checking mm-hmm. neighbors, by and large. But what happens at work, simply, you get a job and damn, you're next to me, right? You're one of those people. And, and, and so the labor movement is much more integrated compared to the bulk of U.S. institutions, which is the basis, not a guarantee, but the basis for change. If we, as you're doing, engage in conscious activity or more engaging in the fight. Because what happens sometimes in those secondary spaces, they say the other pe- person has a tail and they're evil. Blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. They want to rape you with all the kind of stupid stuff they say, right? But if all of a sudden we engage and struggle with people you work with, oh, you're April Sims. You're Stephen Pitts. I know you. Right. That idea might right. be a little strange, but, you know, I, I know you are fully crazy. And that, that's why I raised the question, basically. I think that, that that's not just a matter of the institution by itself fighting for racial justice. It's the potential of bringing some people along in the fight because, once again, they know people, basically. That's why I raised the question. That, that, that's all. No, I think that that's great. And it reminds me of something that Maurice Mitchell said with uh, Black Lives Matter and the, the Working Families Party. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about white workers in unions that see a connection to class, like like the working class, right? And it's the union that brings all of that together. And that is why the right is working so hard to destroy the unions and the labor movement because of the shared identity um, that it allows workers across all races to have. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what that's, yeah. that's what's coming up for me. So it's a, I think that's that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. So um, do the fight. You know, when I called you to say, please, please, please be on my show. You 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 mentioned that that you also started a a a network of women in color and unions in Washington State. Mm-hmm. What first? Why'd you do that? What, what, why'd you want to do that sort of formation? What was the impetus for that? Uh, selfish reasons, really. <laughs> um, you know, I can't believe that um, yourself. I can't believe that at all. I mean, I, I honestly, you know, I um, being the first black woman elected into this position, I am fortunate enough to have a lot of support. I ran unopposed in my campaign, and I knew that, and I know that there are people that love the idea of supporting a black woman in leadership. But I also knew that there um, are a lot of folks that may not be prepared for the way that leadership shows up, right? That I am, what the, what the dominant culture tells us uh, a leader should look like, uh, my leadership style doesn't necessarily match that. And I knew that I selfishly wanted to surround myself with other women of color in leadership positions who were going through the same struggles that I was going through, you know, contemplating the same things. So we're lucky enough in Washington state to have a number of really dynamic women of color in leadership positions. You know, we've got Jane Hopkins, who is the vice president of SEIU 1199 and the only um, labor person serving on Biden's COVID advisory committee right now. Black woman, immigrant. She's amazing. We've got Janie, Janie White, who is the vice president of the Education Association, nearly 100,000 union members all across the state of Washington. And she's the second highest ranking leader in that union, um, Black woman. So um, we've got some Black women directors on the team at the Washington State Labor Council. So I just wanted to create a space where we could come together, um, support each other, find joy in these moments. Um, also, you know, uh, build up a network. There are always folks looking for 
you know, a, a black woman from labor to be a speaker at one of their events. And, you know, we've been able to put together a list of resources for organizations so that we can spread those leadership development opportunities around um, so that I'm not, you know, the the only person representing the black, the face of black women labor leaders in Washington. So our acronym is WOC, Women of Color, but we call ourselves the WOKE group. And, you know, we just, we just lift each other up and, and find ways to support each other. This is, this is your version of the squad, I guess, huh? This is my squad. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. a solid group of about nine of us. And every now and again, when I get busy and forget to schedule something, someone will ping me like, when are we, when are we having happy hour? You know, our very first meeting was uh, kind of funny, you know, cause one of the women came in and, you know, we, we just did a happy hour. One of the women came in and she had her notebook and her pen, you know, which is what you do at meetings when you want to look like you're prepared. Right. Um, and the first thing we did is decide that there's no agenda for our meetings. Like that's white supremacy culture, you know, put your notebook away. We don't have to, you know, this is, this is our space to do with what we want. Um, and, you know, we kicked things off by sharing pieces of our history that you wouldn't find in our bios online, um, created a real uh, a trust space. And it's been amazing. Um, it's been one of the things that's helped me get through the last couple of years. That's really a powerful story to tell that we kind of miss sometimes, April, because because my mind, part of doing the harder work we're trying to do and building a, a progressive country, the, the beloved community, is people have to have to feel the the desire or the the they need to be okay with saying I'm going to run through a brick wall for this movement. I'm going to mm-hmm. I, I see an obstacle, it shall not stop me. I'll run through it. But when we have simply a lot of transactional institutions, we come to a meeting, you have Robert's rules for orders and so forth, then people don't have a, a strong desire to run through a brick wall. But when you kind of build mm-hmm. this kind of network of your sisters, your, your woke sisters in, in Washington, that gives you a little some more strength to say, wait a second, I can go a little bit further. I can go one day longer. I really believe that if we do that more and more in a very variety of settings and build these kind of nodes of powerful folk, that will strengthen our movement a lot. So I'm really excited about what you're doing. Um, it may not be sexy and big, but it's, it's, to me, it's a, the core building block. Oh, that's, that's really important, really cool. You mentioned also um, your... I'm sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, I mean, um, I'm just looking at my uh, my phone and the text messages from my woke group. So, um, you know, like in, like on Wednesday, you know, we were just like, hey, lifting each other up, creating space for each other. Um, it's sometimes hard to lead in moments when you're processing your own trauma. So um, it's been, yeah. Thank you. It's been good. That's, that's great. So, by the way, this Wednesday, I want you to listen, listen to your podcast, by the way. That's a, that's the task for the, the squad coming up. Listen to this podcast, okay? That's what y'all can do. But, um, okay. All right. I'm on it. I'll send the link. <laughs> but seriously, though, um, God, we just started with eight days into 2021. Um, how do you define success for your work this year? If you could map out your dream situation, that's just realistic, by the way. Um, what would your dream be if we came back together in December of this year? What, what would mm-hmm. success look like? Oh, such a good question. Yeah, eight days into two thousand uh, or into twenty-one, and it's already been a long year. So, I mean, like, I think first and foremost, you know, so I, I um, uh, suffered from COVID this year. Right at the end of the yeah. year, I um, I had COVID, and um, it gave me really gave me a different perspective. Um, around my priorities. So first and foremost, my plans for 21 um, and how I will define success is really loving on my family um, and remembering, um, you know, why I do this work and what drives me to do this work. But like professionally, I think just being really focused on how we squeeze every moment of progress from this from this moment, every drop of progress from this moment. Uh, we worked hard in 2020 to deliver this election. And now we have to figure out how we capitalize on those wins. And I mean, not just hard, uh, we worked hard nationally, but also here in Washington state to make sure that we had pro-worker majorities in the House and the Senate and a governor that is really gonna fight for the working class. So 21 is all about making sure that we don't uh, miss the opportunities to um, to fight for an economic recovery that is holistic, right? 
um, and that centers workers in that recovery and not just businesses to make sure that we are providing uh, COVID relief for folks and taking care of their health, uh, making sure that we're organizing. Union favorability has never been higher than it is right now, and we have to take full advantage of this opportunity and make sure that we are organizing more workers into our movement. And then I think, lastly, how we continue to be nimble. So I think in 21, you know, they often say that battleships don't turn on a dime. And I think that, you know, our union institutions are definitely battleships. So I've been thinking about how how I can make sure the Washington State Labor Council is a little more nimble um, and flexible and, and able to respond as the moment requires us to. Because what we learned in 2020 is um, we don't know what to expect in 21. So we got to continue to be nimble and flexible. Good luck with that. That's, that's, that'd be good if you achieve those things. <laughs> good luck with that. Uh, uh, no, 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 I mean, I'm serious that that's important that, that we achieve those things. Yeah. Especially the idea of being, being nimble, you know, because too mm-hmm. often times we get set in our ways and that doesn't allow us to see, see new opportunities or if we see them, take advantage of them. So the idea of mm-hmm. developing a nimble battleship or maybe simply a series of smaller ships that can do is, is, yeah. is super, super yeah. important. So I wasn't being snarky and said good luck with that. I, I'm seriously saying good luck with that. Um, <laughs> I never think it, of you as snarky. Oh, yeah, I've been around me enough. That's all that is, okay? <laughs> uh, that's my default sometimes. <laughs> but 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 how we define Black freedom? I, I raise the question because I think sometimes we lower our sights a lot, you know, and we lower mm-hmm. our sights in terms of a better contract. Or getting mm-hmm. uh, uh, right people in, in office, and to me, we, we should always have freedom dreams. That should always animate what we do. So I always want to ask my guests, how do you define Black freedom? Mm. You know, what's really coming up is that monologue. Um, freedom is heavy, right? Like you got to put your shoulder to freedom, put your okay. shoulder to it. Hope your back don't give out. I think this is this is such an important question because we fight for freedom all the time. Um, and being able to define it and also think like, what what does it look like when we get there? So, I mean, like, of course, like Black freedom is the power to determine the destiny of our communities, you know, what our work looks like, uh, what our education and healthcare systems look like, like just the power to determine your own outcomes is freedom. But then like at the base level, thinking about Wednesday, um, you know, I had this moment on Wednesday when I had promised my daughter we'd go to the beauty supply store, right? She needs some hair products. So she comes in. I'm like, yeah, we'll go up for, you know, I'll be done at four o'clock. We'll run up there. They close at six. So she comes in at four o'clock and give me another half hours at 430. So it's dark outside. And I set all this up to say I had this moment where I was like, well, maybe we shouldn't go outside tonight. Mm. Like maybe it's not safe for us to leave the house. I have no idea if there's a Trump caravan on the freeway somewhere. And like the second question was, if I leave, do I need to bring a firearm with me? Mm. Right. Um, And so in that respect, like freedom is being able to move freely and safety safely without fear of harm. Right. I don't want to worry about, you know, I want my daughters to be able to walk down the street and be safe, feel safe and also be safe. And so in this moment, you know, freedom means, you know, being able to sleep in our beds and not have the police come in and murder us being able to jog down the street um, in your neighborhood and not be shot, Um, being able to play video games, you know, um, in your home and not have the police come in and kill you. Like that, the basic freedom is safety. And then from there, you know, how do we determine our own outcomes? That's good. I just got heavy. I'm sorry. (laughs) I just got heavy. I want you to bring your full self here, that the heavy and the light, that that's all good. So that's really great though. Um, I, mean, I want I want us to, to to look at all the dimensions of our lives and, and talk about them so people hear about them and, and we go forth. Um, last couple of questions, um, April. Of what books are you reading? Mm. What's, what's on your um, reading list right now? So I'm reading a couple books. Um, I like to read for uh, pleasure and then read for personal growth. Um, I do have a goal this year of doing much more reading than I did last year. So I've been wanting to get into some old books. Um, and you know, so for pleasure, I'm always thinking about growth and, you know, 
um, Peloton. I don't, I know this isn't a Peloton series, but they do have this new, um, partnership with, uh, Shonda Rhimes uh, around the year of yes. So I've been revisiting that book and thinking about what a year of yes looks like for me. Um, what it looks like to continue to challenge myself and be, uh, comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, for work, you know, I'm an organizer, so I've been reading about organizing, particularly black workers, um, reading the stories of black led campaigns. Um, we're only eight days into the year and, um, I'm revisiting the Stacey Abrams, uh, lead from the outside. Uh, she's a bit of a, a hero of all of us, I think. Um, and then next up I've got, you know, a bunch of books that I've ordered, you know, for colored girls who have considered politics, that's by four amazing uh, women politicos who share stories on friendship and triumph. I've been um, thinking that I should, you know, read uh, a little more Bill Fletcher this year because I always feel smarter when I read his books. Uh, shout out to Bill Fletcher. And then, um, yeah, so I've always got a couple of books open at any point in time. Yeah, that always happens. That's great. Um, I love music. I mean, what I miss, oh, the whole, yeah. I would miss the whole pandemic. I miss going to to, to, to jazz clubs. I mean, as you know, I, reti yeah. I retired July 1, and I was going to live in a jazz club, basically, and that's <laughs> gone from me. Um, even I've, I've lost my, 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 my dreams for the first part of the, this, this, this year's. Um, mm -hmm. What music drives you? What kind of gets you going, gets you through the, the, the tough times and stuff? Mm. Well, I'm Team Tupac. I'm a West Coast girl, and uh, so I I... I can always listen to Tupac, but, you know, one of the things that I've really loved, you know, thinking about, you know, um, not being able to go to jazz clubs and experience music the way um, we're used to, or the way that we prefer to is the, the verses um, battles that have been set mm. up over this last year. And those just give me a, a, a sense of being in community with folks and um, thinking about the creativity that the uh, music industry is, um, or the way the music industry has, has creatively um, still been able to put out music on new platforms and new ways so that we can feel that same sense of community. And then, you know, um, I'm always interested in whenever one of my, any of my favorite artists drops something new. So Jasmine Sullivan just dropped a new album yeah, I heard that. last yeah, night. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, you know, I've been, um, I had a chance to listen to a few of those tracks. I'm looking forward to um, digging a little deeper into her album and uh, seeing which one of those songs moved me. But, you know, at the end of the day, I can always throw on some, you know, some 90s hip hop and I'm good to go, particularly, you know, from my West Coast crews. Sounds cool. Sounds great. Um, April, this is phenomenal. So thanks for taking time to to be with us, with me, and, and be with others on the show. It's been great. And um, so thanks a lot. It was great to talk with April. I am really excited to hear how the State Labor Council's anti-racist trainings support efforts to build a stronger set of unions in Washington. This anti-racist educational work is so important as we build or rebuild fighting organizations. There is a lot of talk about changing people. I strongly believe that we transform people through engaging in struggle, through educational work and mass campaigns to transform the world. The late Mike Garcia, leader of the SEIU union representing janitors and security officers in California often said, when we fight, we win. This dictum is so important to remember in these days and weeks and months after the insurrection. It's been quite a beginning to the year. Thanks for joining me this week on Black Work Talk. I hope this podcast can grow to become part of the network of our movement for change. We need your help as we build the Black Work Talk community. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you find your podcast and go to Patreon to become a sustainer. Until next episode, stay safe and be well.